Hello, and welcome to the Amateur Cryptid Survival Guide. I'm Cass Rowland. And I'm Jude Furlong. This week, as every week, we bring you a different cryptid. Cass, this this one is uh, near and dear to your... Home. Maybe not heart, but certainly hope. This is another hoax cryptid. I want to I wanna put this out of the way first, because I, I guess hoaxes are a, are a recent topic for us. I like them. I, I think it's very fun... To see how cryptozoologists have been uh, have been duped, just gotten their asses played, handed to them. So I'm hoping we can uh, talk a talk a little bit about the the beautiful tragedy that is the Minnesota Iceman. Yes. So the basic context is this is during the late '60s, early '70s, and there is a guy called oh what's his what's his name Frank Hansen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Frank Hansen. Um, now he has a variety of stories, which I will get into, about the origin of the Minnesota Iceman. The most popular one is that he found it in Siberia and was uh, taking care of the body for an absentee that he called an eccentric California millionaire. But <laughs> some other stories. Uh, are that it had been discovered floating in a block off the coast of Siberia by a Russian seal hunting vessel. Later, he said that a Japanese whaling ship found the body. Later still, he said that it had been found in a deep freeze facility in Hong Kong. Wow. Even later than that, uh, it was an animal that had been shot on a hunting trip in the Whiteface Reservoir region of Minnesota. Ooh. To this day, we aren't sure where it came from. Uh Popular theories suggest that it was collected in Vietnam and flown to the United States in a body bag. Oh, mm-hmm. that's gruesome. It is the corpse of a, as one author describes it, hirsute male hominid, 1.8 meters tall, preserved in ice and transported about the United States as part of a traveling exhibition belonging to Frank D. Hansen. Before it was called the Minnesota Iceman in the news and tabloids and such, it was known then as the Siberskoy creature. Siberskoy? I, I don't know. Is this a place in Minnesota? Uh, not that I am familiar with. So I cannot help you with pronunciation, unfortunately. Si- Siberskoy? I think it, it's a town in uh, the Siberian region, I think. Mm. That makes sense. It, it sounds like you're speaking Russian a little bit. Siberskoy. I think I got it. <laughs> now, Cass, have you ever heard of the Minnesota Iceman before? Is this is this a popular uh, talk amongst Minnesotans, or is this a is this a stain on your reputation? You think? So I'm not gonna lie. The first time I ever heard of the Minnesota Iceman was when you were roasting me about Minnesota not having any cryptids. But last winter, I think in January. There was a uh, resurgence of Minnesota ice person-themed art. What? um, Because someone recreated the Minnesota Iceman. I think we covered this in a a cryptid news section. Is Um, it? I'm trying trying to remember. Yeah, no, they they made another Minnesota Iceman and uh, put it in a, a state park near my house. Right. Yes. My yes, family went searching for it in the snow. I remember being very frustrated freshman year. We've talked about this a ton, I think, of the um mm, mm-hmm. the the cryptid hunt freshman year where like they gave us a clue of some kind of like this is a a famous folklore creature of Minnesota and it's it was an ice theme mm, and yeah. you had to you had to go through the library, use the system to figure out the letters for it. And it was the exact letters of the Minnesota Ice. It was the same amount of letters. Oh but no! But it was not the it was not the Minnesota Iceman at the end. I forget what it was, but it pissed me the fuck off. I was so mad because it was like something very related to the Minnesota Iceman, but not the same name. And I was like, that is not famous at all. What you've just said, I think I, I know more than you. <laughs> I will always remember that as the day that I learned cheaters never prosper um, because we cheated off of another group and the other group was wrong. 
So we spent an extraneous two hours wandering around the library, lost and confused. <laughs> Don't cheat, kids. So this, of course, all starts with uh, this guy, Frank Hansen. I can't tell you much about him other than that he is a former U.S. soldier and he did serve in Vietnam, which seems to indicate that there's a very distinct possibility uh, that he did get this from Vietnam, given the context of the time. It's 1968. He is a veteran, mm. etc. Mm-hmm. Eventually, though, there is a, a young naturalist, uh, Terry Cullen, and he alerts a couple of academics he knows. Um, these being the editor of the Argosy magazine, Ivan Sanderson, and a man named Bernard Huvelmans, a Belgian-French zoologist, explorer, researcher, and a writer probably best known as the father of cryptozoology. We might have made mention of him before. Um, Lauren Coleman is certainly the more popular man to point to now in the cryptozoological field, but Huvelmans was like, he is one of the first Bigfoot guys, basically. This was his this was his bag. Terry Cullen alerts these guys. They come to Frank Hansen's house and his sideshow, uh, and they study the the corpse in intimate detail. It is frozen in a very large block of ice to preserve it. Uh, this is why it is called the Minnesota Iceman. I don't know that it was found in a block of ice, and I would have my doubts that it was. Mm-hmm. But they study it. Uh, they they are where are very accurate. Like they take ex- very exact measurements. Huvelman does anyway. Sanderson is the editor of Argosy Magazine, like I said. And Argosy Magazine is a pulp magazine. Uh, It pushes out a lot of tabloids, a lot of pieces of fiction. By the time of the 70s, it was kind of identified as a softcore erotica magazine for men because of the stuff they would push out. It was a lot of, like, quote-unquote racy stuff. Um, Mm. Ivan Sanderson lovingly describes the Minnesota Iceman with intimate details on oh. length, height, size. Now, now, Jude. Yeah. What um, what type of length? <laughs> oh, you know. Ooh. Intimate indeed. Bernard Hewleman would eventually put out a book about the study of the Minnesota Iceman in, I believe, 1974. It didn't get a translation until four or five years ago. Um, Hewleman passed away in in 2001, but he donated a lot of his stuff uh, to the Museum of Zoology of Lausanne in Switzerland. And he also helped found the International Society of Cryptozoology, which is now defunct but he was its first president back in the 1980s. Oh, that's so sad. You never want to hear, I was the president of a thing that no longer exists. Yeah. But Hewleman is has a very, very far-spanning reputation in the cryptozoological community. Uh, most cryptozoologists today, I think, would point to him as their inspiration for becoming cryptozoologists. Oh, that's nice. Mm-hmm. They put out some papers on it early in 1969 or something and basically to say this is very likely a an unknown uh or heretofore not not seen or studied specimen from the from the prehistoric era uh how it was walking around in the modern day or surviving in the modern day is very very strange said humans he has this he has this whole paper uh dubbing it the Ompongoid, or homopongoid, uh, which was a new classification for what this guy was, because he believed it was a totally new hominid specimen that not documented in the fossil record before now. Ooh! They study it. They they describe it in very intimate detail. Um, here we go: a robust, barrel-chested male with a thick neck and large hands and feet. Its face was broad, flattened, and possessed a short, upturned nose and prominent brow ridges. An eyeball dangled from one of the sockets, apparently resulting from a gunshot to the back of the head, and a bend in the forearm was interpreted as evidence for a fractured radius and ulna. It had enormous hands, its thumbs were slender, tapered, and long, its nails were flat, yellow, and of an appearance that almost looked manicured. 
and a heel-like pad was present on the palm's outer side, a feature suggested by Sanderson to be indicative of habitual quadrupedal behavior. At one point during the examination, the glass over its case cracked, releasing an odor described as that of decomposing flesh. They alert a primatologist that they know, John Napier. He gets invited to study the creature as well. He doesn't come until 1969 or so. might have been 1970 by that point. He studies it. He looks at it. And he says, this is a fake. This is made of latex. What you have showed to me is a, a mere prank, my friends. You've been duped. You're fools. <laughs> oh, no. Frank Hansen, uh, later 70s, 80s, goes on to say, no, 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 no. Um, the flesh was just too decomposed at that point for me to put out the real thing. So I had a, I had a replica made. That replica was actually bought in 2013, and you can now find it at this one place. Uh, ah, here we go. Purch purchased uh, by Steve Busey, the Museum of the Weird Owner in Austin, Texas, and you can find it on display there. It was auctioned on eBay, which is the weird, not the weirdest place it could show up. Tons of stuff on eBay shows up, but for the prestige and legacy this thing has, and I mean it when I say it has a legacy. This is not a... It, it is both a one-off creature in that it only existed from like the 60s into the early 70s and then was like put away and not seen again for a long while. But on the other hand, it has such an influence on all cryptozoology since then. Basically, a lot of people took this in the cryptozoological community of the 60s and early 70s as hard evidence that something was out there. And when Napier put out his book in 76, just two years after the study put out by Huvelmans, and he discredits the entire thing and says, no, this is absurd. Uh, particularly because Napier's study was put out in English, whereas Huvelmans was only released in French at the time. It was generally... It was a pretty huge blow when it came out because everyone had started to buy into it. Uh, tons and tons of theories were made about this and about how this could be linked to Bigfoot and Wildman documented throughout the eras. And we're going to get into that because retroactively, this thing started to paint a sort of picture for the cryptozoological community. But this was a huge blow at the time that people did not take well. It dissuaded a lot of people from doing cryptozoology on Bigfoots for a while then about until the 90s i would say when that when reality tv starts to surface and that becomes a huge thing again like for a while mm. it was all ghosts and aliens and stuff before we see another crypto boom uh during the during the 90s and early 2000s and now now it's just all bigfoot which bothers the fuck out of me you know me i'm not a i'm not a bigfoot person i like bigfoot but i just wish it weren't all bigfoot you know what i'm saying all cryptozoologists after 1990 know is bisexual <laughs> love Bigfoot, eat hot ship, and lie. <laughs> I'm no exception. This is also a case worth noting because it did not just impact the cryptozoological community. Again, Napier was a primatologist. He didn't he didn't invest in stuff like Bigfoot. He didn't buy into it, but he was, at the end of the day, a person who studies hominids ancient and current and this also had a very big impact on the primatologist community of the time and the archaeological community many of the people who have a connection to this case are archaeologists and cryptozoologists they do both official sanctioned in theory good science and also the pseudoscience of cryptozoology there is a lot of overlap in these communities during the 60s and 70s and i I am terrified by the influence it has had on archaeology as a case study. Um, mm -hmm. Because a lot of people bought into it that there was this missing link, there were a lot of new considerations within archaeology about studies of things uh, like the, the abominable snowman. Um, there are various reports of uh, Bigfoot-like hominids throughout, the, throughout East Asia, uh, throughout the the sort of Southwest Asia and North African region. Um, 
like particularly, I think one of the big cases here is in, in Pakistan. Uh, and then some of the others are in uh, China, Northern India, basically anywhere. If you look for mountainous or highly forested regions, these become a huge focus of study. Once again, particularly by French archaeologists and French zoologists, as well as cryptozoologists from the Americas and from France. And one of the big ones, let's see, basically Huvelman's description of the creature became seen as if it fits this description, not only is it probably real, it's something we should study and hunt down because this could tell us a lot about the fossil record and about the modern day stuff, because if it's still around, why is a living fossil still around? You don't find most hominids uh, alive. Like we only have the great apes. That would be crazy if there's, there's some kind of a uh, big ape monkey human person that we don't know about. We got to go after it. Here we go. Thanks to Huvelman's influence, the concept of a dark-furred Asian crypto hominid with an upturned nose, distinctive facial hand and foot anatomy, and a barrel-shaped chest has caught on. Uh, if you look at a lot of the like hypothetical Bigfoot drawings after the Huvelman case, they do often resemble this kind of creature. Mm-hmm. For instance, crypto hominid researcher Helmut Lufswiswa, uh, he is another Frenchman, he is an archaeologist, he served during World War II, and he dedicated himself after that to a lot of study of hominids throughout the Asian regions, both North, South, East, and Western Asia. Basically, anywhere he heard anything about it, he would look into it. He, I don't know that he did a lot of hands-on studies, though, like some of the other ones we're going to look at. But he contested that in 1994, images from ancient art were consistent with this description, and hence that knowledge of Homo pongoids has been influential throughout human history. He later had a 2001 conference in Australia that sort of documents this uh, theoretical history, dating it all the way back to the 1600s in, in Java. Basically, he contests that this dates all the way back to Java with a man named uh, Jacob de Bont, otherwise known as Bontius. He came to Java in 1625, stayed there until his death in 1631. A piece of his writing published post-mortem the Historiae Naturalis et Medicae India Orientalis. Basically, I think that translates to uh, the history of nature and medicine in the in Oriental India. Um, published only in 1658 in Amsterdam. He did a deep study on this, I guess, to find this poll. He mentions anthropomorphic hairy creatures, which although not being humans, looked and behaved like them in all respects, except they had no language and to which he gave the name Orang. Orang or Homo Sylvestris is now generally believed, even by the most prominent Western scholars, that this was, of course, the first reference to the ape orangutan. But this cannot be so for a number of reasons. And he starts to list off the fact that these things are bipedal, that they walked upright, and that they were generally described in a much more human fashion than orangutans have been described. But because of the writing of this time, orangutan was essentially a term you would use for a lot of, like, I forget what it translates to, but it's something like human-like. And it's very difficult to tell whether they're actually referring to orangutans or some other ape, or if they're referring to these ape men, these wild men as, I forget his name already. He has such a funny name. Helmet, Helmet, Helmet Lufswisua, as Helmet is starting to contest. He says that we've been wrong about all these documents from pre-modern history, that all of it is actually connected to the piece that Huvelman's described. He has this thing about, hey, I was on the air in Japan, we were studying a Wildman case, and he really tries to valorize Huvelman's in this interview. Uh, and throughout, he is also, he really doesn't like that Huvelman's research went so unnoticed and the study widely discredited because of the fact that it was published in French, generally not widely accessible to most people within the English-speaking uh, primatologist and cryptozoological community. And he says only Napier's study was given any kind of actual weight. Uh, meanwhile, Huvelman's was just thrown right out. I, I went on this Japanese show where we were studying Wildman, and I tried to emphasize the importance of Huvelman's work, but 
all that got edited out. I feel like Helmet has this weird, like, crypto bro crush on on Huvelman's work and yes. on Huvelman's as a person. Um, oh. Like, he really values Huvelman's work. And I, I maybe it's just that, like, kind of French bond they have. <laughs> I feel I feel like I never hear about French cryptozoologists. Like these are really the only two that I've seen. Um and I would just say I think the French cryptozoological community is perhaps the most embarrassing one next to the British. <laughs> what if we were both cryptozoologists and we were both French? And we were both we boys. <laughs> Were they in a relationship? No, I don't even know that they met. I, I feel like this oh. is more like hero worship than anything. Because If you look at the way <laughs> Helmet talks about humans, it drove me crazy. I have never seen this kind of valorization of, a, of an academic within the crypto community. That's It's an insane level. Like People do not talk this way about Lauren Coleman. Lauren Coleman does not talk this way about other cryptozoologists. They usually talk about them like peers or fellow scientists. Helmet <laughs> thinks of humans as a hero. Oh no. Basically, the trick is uh, this whole thing with Frank Hansen changing out the model. There is photo evidence and drawn evidence based on the studies by Napier and by Huvelmans and by other people later on taking photos and drawings of this uh, of this figure. There's reason to believe the figure was changed out over time because the model's appearance also happens to change. Photos show that over the years, the form of the face and body varied somewhat. In some photos, the mouth is closed and in other, it's open, clearly revealing a, comp a complement of large teeth. Maybe there was more than one model and some of the models look more realistic than others, but it does also seem possible that as the model used by Hansen was defrosted and frozen again for each annual outing, it would have taken on a slightly different pose and appearance each time. The trick is that there are some things within the original model and photos that you virtually never see. For instance, there was like plant matter and vegetation still uh, stuck on the mouth of the creature, which it, it is very rare for a for a hoaxer to go to that level of detail. It's something you virtually only see in archeological finds that are well-preserved. It would be something, I guess, but the trouble is the images involved in the study are actually very hard to access. They're still copyrighted. Um, so people studying the Iceman now usually have to go off of just that one anatomical image I've sent you because there's, there's very few photos there's very few drawings that are easily accessible or uh, republishable, both online and offline. There have been a lot of like post studies of this as a as a case within modern cryptozoology where we were totally off the mark and we got everything wrong. And I just want to apologize, like by these very guilty feeling cryptozoologists, I guess that they were so easily played during the seventies. <laughs> because it, it is like yeah. Feels like this is not a seventies specific thing. I feel like we've talked a lot about cryptozoologists getting fooled no, and tooled no. and schooled in a lot of contexts. I would say um, the periods you see it most often in are anything, virtually anywhere pre nineteen seventies. It was very easy to do fakes then. We don't have the tools we have now. I would say well into the two thousands, you can find cases of this, but this was widespread. This was international. This had like. When it came out that this was a fake, there were there was a resonating impact it had at the time. Oh, no, uh, yeah, it's sad. Uh, people are still lamenting it today. Um, oh no, I know. <laughs> Particularly because I think Bigfoot is the what? What is it? What's the the holy grail of the cryptozoological community? Because if you can prove Bigfoot widely seen by biologists and zoologists as perhaps the most bizarre cryptid. Like, there's a lot of stuff you can argue, like we, 70% of our ocean is unexplored, that kind of thing. We don't know what that could be down there. You know, the giant squid was thought of as a myth until like way later. Uh, basically, like the 1900s was when it first became actually tangibly provable uh, for most people. 
And so stuff like Nessie, well, we don't know, but it's widely discredited. But I guess the theory is that if you could prove Bigfoot, if you can prove something like Bigfoot even, that would be a huge blow uh, and a huge gain for the cryptozoological community and a huge blow to any of their, their detractors because that's like the big one. That's the thing people get mocked over. Mm. That is the thing that real scientists go to cryptozoological cons and he said, and they say, stop sending me fucking hair samples. Get me a bot, get me a piece of the body, get me bones, anything. You cannot keep sending me footprint casts and hair samples. Those are so easy to fake. Bring me a biopsy or don't call me. We, we talked about that a couple episodes ago, right? About this one guy mm-hmm. going to a crypto con and saying, hey, stop. <laughs> <laughs> I like you guys. You're very funny. Stop. <laughs> yeah. But the description Huvelman's had of the creature became very widespread, both in the zoological, cryptozoological, and archaeological community as a way of linking creatures. Like, Pongoides was taken seriously as a... Um, a species for a very brief period of time. I'm trying to I'm trying to read the French Wikipedia article. Uh, the translation is a little rough, but this was particularly notable within uh, various regions of Asia, and really mainly by French archaeologists coming to Asia. For instance, uh, one of the other big ones is a man named. Jordi Marbonnier, a Spanish man who lived in France for most of his life. Uh, He went out in 1987 to go hunting for it. Uh, He wrote a paper, Les Omenines Reliques d'Asia Centrale on the Pakistani cryptid, known as the Barmanu. He dedicated a lot of his time and research to it. He was murdered in 2002 in Afghanistan, and he collected, according to Laura Coleman at least, more than 50 first-hand sighting counts and all eyewitnesses recognized the reconstruction of Huvelman's Homo Pongoides. They picked out Homo Pongoides as their match to Barmanu from Marbiner's ID kit of drawings of apes, fossil men, aboriginals, monkeys, and the Minnesota Iceman. In 1994, during a search in Shishikul Valley, uh, cryptozoologist Jordi Marbiner and Massillon and another associate report that once during the late evening, they heard unusual guttural sounds, which, according to them, only a primitive voice box could have produced. No further progress was made after that. So you've got all these elements of it had to have been a primitive voice box or something ape-like. You have first-hand witnesses generally matching it to uh, Huvelman's work. And so a, this became a very big thing to try and make a, a timeline of some kind and an origin place for this cryptid. And that's so interesting to me because despite it generally being linked to Asia... Frank Hansen couldn't pin a place on where this thing lived because first he tries to link it to like far North Asia, the Siberian coast. Then he matches it to, where did I say? Then found by a Japanese whaling ship. And then it's found in Hong Kong and then, then later on, people start saying it's from Vietnam. Well, Frank Hansen is still trying to suggest that it's from Minnesota. So it seems that although a lot of the regions are from Asia, Frank Hansen did have other regions that he would list off because he's a sideshow huckster. He's trying to tell a story. He's trying to pitch it and make it interesting for whatever audience he has, presumably changing it every time he goes to a new place. So he's changing it to make it interesting And I think cryptozoologists are being a little too trusting of whatever his reports are, or they're trying to factualize it in a way that is not working out for them. But they're trying, Mm -hmm. the big one is that they keep trying to link it to jungle or mountainous regions, Um, mainly Vietnam. And this is because there are a lot of ape man reports in Vietnam, and we will get into the gorillas and the wild men and ape men of Vietnam right after we go to cryptic news. Ooh, cryptid news. It's a little off key because I'm trying not to cough. (laughs) (laughs) If you have uh, cryptid news that you would like to send us, please feel free uh, to send it to us at our social media accounts 
at ACSGCast on Twitter, Instagram, or Tumblr. Or send it directly to us at acsgcast at gmail.com, unless you're cryptocurrency. I, uh, I have this terrible news for you, actually, regarding cryptocurrency. I'm not going to oh. mention the name of the cryptocurrency company because I have this terrible fear that they name search and that they may be listening to the podcast right now. <laughs> they have some kind of like NFT game where you trade exotic animals. Um, they've been putting out the hashtag, hashtag free tiger king or free Joe exotic, oh, something like that. No. Because yeah, I know, I know. But these are the kinds of people that are pushing uh a link between cryptocurrency and cryptids. I mean, it was a very easy brand move and I don't think anyone had really capitalized on it before, but they're pushing it now and everyone's hearing about it. The real tragedy is uh, there is a an animated movie that we've discussed before that shares the same name that is, I think, potentially being lumped in with the NFTs. But as far as I've seen, the director is not, no one in the staff or not the director, none of the actors are involved in NFTs. The movie production is not involved with them. It is just a beautiful indie animated film that was really experimental and fun that is now having a terrible image pushed on it just because of a shared name, which more and more crypto companies are doing. I need you to watch your asses out there because they are stealing names and labels to sell their product better because of a potential shared identity. This happened with Metabots just a little bit ago. Um, where the crypto company straight up bought the trademark for Metabots because it had just expired in Europe. So they have the- That's so predatory. Right? Here's the trick. They don't own the IP. They just own the trademark. There is an ongoing legal battle about this, but a lot of crypto companies are doing this now. To all our listeners out there, if you have any kind of creative project, uh, particularly one involving cryptids, please, please, please watch out because it is- very, very likely that they will try and capitalize on that, particularly this one brand that, again, I'm not naming. If you if you know about cryptids, if you know about any of the uh, projects that we have marketed or, sorry, not marketed, promoted on the podcast before, you might have like accidentally looked them up and gotten confused because I promise you, we do everything in our power to not promote cryptocurrency or NFTs on this podcast. We do the opposite. We antagonize them. If you see anything marketing itself as like dollar sign ACSG coin or some shit like that. Oh my God. Uh, no. I, don't know that, I don't know that we'll have the power to take them to court or anything, but that I'll have to get a lawyer to start discussing things. Listen, I can dust off my, my old pre-law hat. <laughs> will you, will you represent us at trial? <laughs> I think that's illegal. Um, but I'll certainly uh, throw some legal jargon at them that will make them think we have uh, an attorney. Which, if you're listening, cryptocurrency people, we do. If you're not a cryptocurrency person listening, we don't. Um <laughs> <laughs> you can't you can't just immediately say that they're probably still listening listen i know they don't listen to this podcast because they blatantly have no idea what it's about cryptocurrency people if you try to steal our ip uh or if you keep harassing us asking us to host your ceos um to give crypto advice to our listeners I will start publicly shaming you on this podcast. They're all on Twitter. We're on Twitter. It's so easy to shame them there. Ooh, shame them. Get I, we've got a, we've got, how many followers do we have now? Oh, <laughs> not very many. We will, we will send our legion of 50 or so followers <laughs> after you. We will get Listen. your app. Listen, everyone who listens to this podcast, go follow us on social media so that we can do the thing you do when you see, like, a lion. We, we need to start ratioing. We need to start ratioing the crypto bros. Ratio them. Please. Please. For us. Anyway, what cryptid news do you have? Oh, that's a good question. Because I have the tab open. And I uh, lost it. There it is. Okay. So... This was actually kind of a, a sad thing, oh. um, but it came up when I was looking up uh, cryptid news, um, and now it's uh, they're talking about the way that a lot of uh, currently endangered animals are going to become very similar to cryptids. Oh, um, yeah. Where they're going to be really rare, 
um, and impossible to see, um, which is very unfortunate. Um, this is actually similar to I I don't know if we discussed the the New Zealand bird. Yeah. That had like never been seen on footage that they didn't think was real. Um, let's see. I also found one where there was a uh, person who made a cryptid based uh, clothing line. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, the. Oh, crap. What was it? Dead Ink Apparel. Uh, yes. Princeton State University alum Justin Haynes, um, who had a lot of experience in fine arts and graphic design. So he started a uh, clothing uh, business, which he describes as horror-inspired streetwear, which uh, draws a lot of inspiration from cryptids. So yeah, if, if that sounds like something you would be interested in, uh, please go give Dead Ink Apparel a, a look. Um, there is... Maybe not cryptid focused, but like kind of a horror theme. And it, we are recording this on on Halloween. Um, I know, yeah, it's a spooky, scary time. Um, but BDG uh, Brian David Gilbert did just release Abba, yes. which is a uh, classic horror monster and horror villains cover of various Abba songs, based on a conversation he had with a friend where he was saying, actually. Most avatars could be sung by like Halloween monsters, right? They've turned it into a full album. Very, very good. Uh, so- song of the summer, uh, song of the autumn. Uh, go, go stream it and stuff. I, I don't know that he needs our help promoting it, but it's good stuff anyway. And as long as this is not a radio show and we don't have a music license, I need to keep promoting fun music on here. That's true. Everyone, for just a moment, while you're listening to this, don't stop listening to this. Just but put just, it on the background. Yeah, just just go pull up, lay all your blood on me, um, and, uh, you know, just have it playing in the background. I, I do love the facial expressions he makes in that particular music it's video. Very, it's, it's very, very good. good. Uh, very recently, also, there was a Creepy Cryptids of West Virginia Folklore Center uh, focus for new scavenger hunt in Taylor County, West Virginia. They kicked off a Taylor County monster hunt, which... Uh, runs actually until November 1st at 4.30 p.m. So it is ending tomorrow. Uh, by the time this podcast is out, it will have already been over. Hope you didn't miss it. If you are a West Virginia listener, do we have any West Virginia listeners? I hope so. <laughs> You'd think, I wouldn't also, you? I also have West Virginia news that I forgot to mention. Oh, yeah, go ahead. There's a, a new board game coming out. Oh! Uh, from uh, Lonely Hero Games in Morgantown, which is called Hungry for Humans. It is uh, meant to be a board game that highlights some of the cryptids and folklore in West Virginia. And so in the game, each player has a monster friend that they have to feed the best food they can find so that the monster doesn't eat them instead. And all of the dishes and restaurants featured in the game are uh, based on actual West Virginia local restaurants. And some of the cryptids in the game um, are some of our favorites. The Mothman, the Flatwoods Monster, the Grafton Monster, and mm-hmm. more. Very fun. Yeah, it's... Oh, it's a good list, actually. I really like this. Uh, it looks very cute. Yeah, there is there is still time to back this project. There's 17 days left on it at the time of recording, so I think by the time this uh, episode releases, there will be 14 days left. You'll have, you'll have a solid two weeks to back this project, uh, which I, I would definitely encourage. Actually, it looks very fun. There's a lot of good rewards and stuff. So get out there, go back Hungry for Humans. Um, go look for uh, Dead Ink Apparel's shirts and stuff, the horror-inspired streetwear. Uh, and and just have a good time out there listening to uh, uh, but I don't know how to say it. <laughs> I think it's, yeah, I think it's Abba. Ah! Or, but. <laughs> I would do a more blood-curdling shriek, but A, I don't want to murder our listeners' ears, and B, I don't want to murder my own throat, so we'll have to be content with that. Uh, let's get back to the Minnesota Iceman, and we're going to jump way back 
into uh, Vietnam. This is shortly after North Vietnam has declared its in independence from French Indochina. Um, and it is the North Vietnamese, the Viet Cong, are currently uh, fighting at this time and trying to establish themselves as a region. But in 1949, there is a detailed account, at least according to uh, Helmut in this 2001 symposium or statement that he has to an Australian cryptozoological conference, where a group of Viet Cong soldiers are patrolling the mountainside. Um, there is a there is an ethnic group in Vietnam known as the Um Nong. Uh, they live in the mountains, and in the the Dak Lok province. Uh, and along the way, they meet some ape men, the, this soldier group patrolling the area. Uh, they, there were numerous human-like footprints, but not human footprints. And they heard a group of creatures fleeing through the dense bush while making noises like twittering. And after having followed one very visible track to a cave, discovered a frightened male covered with black fur and having his long hair falling on his shoulders. There was a kind of hearth and something like a bed made of leaves in the cave, as well as animal bones, and significantly sharp cutting stones. So this is a very important detail here, is that these animals are, uh, they have the distinct possibility of intelligence, of tool use, which is very common in a lot of great apes, but they're also like making bedsides and stuff, which is very interesting to me. Um, the big thing that people say separate apes and humans is just an ability for language. This is me getting into the linguistics I know a little bit here, but Basically, although you can teach an ape sign language, we have seen gorillas learn this, we have seen monkeys learn this. There are plenty of apes that are more than capable of learning sign language and uh, having conversations. The trick is their brain is not rigged for language in the same way ours is, and they don't actually organize sentences in any reasonable fashion. Um, they will repeat the same word over and over again. They will move words around they never are really capable of learning any kind of sentence order or grammar um and they have a really hard time connecting words overall other than words that they have a distinct and tangible association with for instance you can't really teach an ape conjunctions or that kind of thing but they're very good at learning food words and activity words like play orange etc um what's very interesting to Helmet, at least, is the various ape men and wild men are often described as twittering. This is important to him, at least, because broadly speaking, great apes, monkeys, all that, they are not described as twittering. They have howls, roars. Um, the sounds they make are not comparable to those of birds, but this happens a lot in the various wild men he studies, that they often have some kind of like whistling or chirping kind of voice uh, that they describe as twittering a lot. Later on in Vietnam, uh, this is still, I think, during the 40s, might have been early 50s, a helicopter is found downed, but the, and the pilots are found dead nearby, but not by bullet wounds, not by shrapnel damage or anything like that. It seems like they were taken out of the helicopter and they were found dead with broken backs, which if you are familiar with ape attacks, this happens a lot where apes will like beat the shit out of you, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Um, the big tactic to get an ape to not kill you is you curl up in a ball and put your back to them. Um, it certainly makes you more durable, but if they keep hitting you, they will probably break your spine. It's very yeah. interesting to me that, that at times the wild men and ape men are just creatures that like watch humans from afar, and then run away into the woods. And apparently in this instance, uh, the evidence for them was that, oh my God, they killed two people. Whole, which, holy shit! Yeah. <laughs> if you have organized wild men that can use tools and are hunting you down, oh my God. <laughs> that is a nightmare scenario for me. If Bigfoot wants to kill me, I think he could. Yeah. I don't think he could do it with his bare hands. That's the trick. I think I could, I could, I, could I beat Bigfoot in a fist fight? No. Could I get away? Yes. But if Bigfoot had a gun, yeah. <laughs> if, Big, if Bigfoot had sword or 
or even just sharp rock, I'm done for. I'm dusted. That's the one advantage I have over Bigfoot is use of sharp rock. Listen, if Bigfoot's having a good day, I'm gone. doesn't matter what weapons I'm bringing with me. <laughs> Listen, I got one of those toy wooden snakes for a spine. I'm gone. I'm done. The very big thing that you may be familiar with, um, I don't know how familiar everyone is with this, but this is kind of a big thing that you see in American letters, is that American soldiers during the Vietnam uh, invasion and war, they talk about a lot of creepy shit, actually. Uh, there's haunting and ghosts, which I think we can generally t- chalk up to the trauma of war. But there's a very interesting trend of them being attacked by ape men. Uh, I've seen very old stories of like, yeah, my grandpa was in Vietnam. He and his group like explored some caves and uh, they found like a group of weird ape guys that ran away from them up through the tunnels. And the tunnels are a very big thing is that like the tunnels were often connect to various cave systems. This was a common way of like setting traps landmines uh there are numerous pit traps used by the Viet Cong as a tactic of uh trapping U.S. soldiers or killing them and one of the big things was tunnels which it sucks to go down in a tunnel American soldiers hated this shit it was very easy to get trapped they could drop the tunnels on you from afar etc often these were connected to caves I've seen a lot of horror stories about this but also a lot of allegedly uh true stories where people would get trapped in caves and find like, and, or at least see from a distance groups of uh, almost human people, often ape men or wild men of some kind. Wild men gets bandied around a lot. And I, I guess we should draw a distinction between Bigfoots and wild men because Helmet tries to anyway. This is a very weird distinction that Helmet makes that big feet are around eight to 10 feet tall. The wild men are more on like a human scale where they're like five foot ten or like low six feet. Mm-hmm. So something about the wild, he, he distinguishes them as like two separate species potentially uh, that in the Asian region throughout like throughout Asia, particularly East and South Asia, you have wild men. Meanwhile, in the Americas, you have Bigfoot as a species, which he does not try to prove the existence of Bigfoot through this documented record. I guess that's just taken for granted. Um, this is a really weird distinction he makes that I don't get the reasoning behind it. But but in Vietnam, there were also a ton of stories of U.S. soldiers getting their camps ransacked by apes. Uh the, the whole phenomena of Vietnam guerrillas attacking soldiers. But the trick was they wouldn't go out of their way to like kill soldiers. They would like scare them, get them out of the camp. And the U.S. soldiers would just have to watch from a distance as the apes went through their stuff and then stole a bunch of food <laughs> and ran away. Now, the soldiers would describe these as guerrillas. But the way they are physically described, helmet protests, is as bipedal, very hairy creatures more in line with Huvman's descriptions of apes. Often they have very big hands, uh, upturned noses, etc. All the classic features of the pungoid. Mm-hmm. Which I think means human-like monkey uh, in a Latin translation. Can't remember. But it's such a... It's so fucking weird because I've looked at some of these and I kind of agree with helmet here that like their descriptions don't match that of gorillas um and i don't know the wildlife of a lot of uh the a lot of tropical asia i'm just not familiar with it i have no i have no way to speak on uh whether or not gorillas live in vietnamese jungles i don't i don't know um but the the these were stories that like i've heard before that like a lot of times you would hear Uh, whooping and hollering like monkeys and gorillas out in the woods. The trick is uh, a lot of these like nightly screams and stuff, 
were also an intimidation tactic by uh, Viet Cong soldiers used to like keep soldiers up late at night. And I do doubt that Vietnamese soldiers are running around in guerrilla suits or anything. It seems much more likely, if it is true in any fashion, that there were actual guerrillas running around in, in Vietnam ransacking soldiers. Okay, but think about this. How great of a scare tactic would it would be, be incredible. to it would train be incredible. wild gorillas to evade If that's what they did, enemies. if there is a if there is a unit of Vietnamese gorillas dedicated to attacking soldiers, uh, I I hope they were given given medals of honor by by Ho Chi Minh himself. That's incredible. <laughs> you know what? Call that guerrilla warfare. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was waiting for one of us to make that joke the whole fucking episode. Um, but yes, th- this was a very big thing that there were guerrilla attacks of some kind. And Helmet basically says that like this lines up with all the all the various Asian wild men, and it seems like there is a a large sector of Asia that is populated by these creatures or populated by relatives of these creatures that the, the there are some kind of like families or groups spread out across asia in various little pockets i just i don't know how to discredit it just because i'm not familiar with the wildlife uh, i will say why the fuck would there be apes in siberia they are even if you're very hairy, there is no way you are warm enough to live out in Siberia. There is Siberian wildlife, but it's shit like, as far as I know, it's shit like bears. That's what mm-hmm. you find in, in the Siberian uh, mountains, in the Siberian plains, etc. You find bears and foxes, very well-haired creatures. There is not an ape alive that has that amount of hair. They are not suited to anywhere but like tropical and arboreal regions it's just not in the cards i don't see an ape living there yeah um in japan in vietnam in sections of uh nepal and india i can maybe see it maybe but the problem is, I think Helmet is doing a lot of work to make these things linked when they aren't. It's a very interesting trend, but I think it's very poorly analyzed. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we should jump over to the Cryptids Wiki to see how how they talk about the uh, the, the Minnesota Iceman. Mm. Oh, the Cryptids Wiki! Oh boy. Says Cryptid Hunter twenty five. Yes, another cryptid that's in my area. Well, dead cryptid. Oh, rude. <laughs> it says Wait, a fan of you. Charlie, she got frozen. <laughs> that one's really good. Hoaxers be like, you know, it looks like my mom. Oh my gosh, I'm going to be rich. That just seems mean to your mom. Don't roast your mom like that. Have some respect. Unless your mom is a horrible person, in which case, say, you know, it's still there are better ways to, there are better ways to retaliate against awful people. I'm trying to look at other, um, other sorts of wild men, but like, the problem is wild men gets used in two ways. Um, you have. You have wild men in the sense that Helmet is using it, where it is uh, monkey-like humanoids and stuff of a smaller stature than Bigfoot. And then you have wild men used in the U.S. sense, where it is very literally a wild man. It is some guy who, like, went off the grid a while ago. No one's heard about him. And he's turned into, like, guy with a very big beard uh, will hunt down, like, strangers who come come into his area and stuff. Uh, there are some other interesting cryptids within Vietnam, and one of the very interesting things is that, at least according to Helmet, the the Nong people, when they were talking with this uh, the Viet Cong patrol, they said like, "Oh yeah, the mountain apes. Yeah, no, we trade with them all the time. Uh, we give them cool rocks and stuff, and they give us occasionally like some various 
like plants and stuff they've found that we use in farming, which that's fascinating. So I'm willing to believe that there is some kind of like very intelligent, great ape in Vietnam. That's as far as my belief goes. How do we feel about the Minnesota Iceman? Would you have fallen for that trick, do you think? Um, I don't think so. And here's why. Because, so, one of the things I've noticed is, um, one, it's a very weird thing to show someone. Just an ape man in a box. <laughs> um, two, the pose is too stylistic. Uh, there's the dramatic. It feels very Renaissance, doesn't it? It's like, it's like that fallen angel pose. It's doing the paint me like one of your French girls pose. Um, <laughs> with the the added feature of uh, attempting to cover a penis that is weirdly shaped and weirdly placed. The Minnesota Iceman understands original sin. <laughs> listen, listen. In this drawing you showed me, why are the testicles where like just slightly below where the belly button would be. That's not where they're supposed to go. That's not where they're supposed to be. It is very high up, isn't it? That's too high up. Is, is, like, what's going on there? I will say, though, that I did enjoy, I didn't believe, but I did enjoy the rationale behind the new Minnesota Iceman because I thought it was very cute. Oh, um, yeah. Because it was someone who had made a Minnesota Iceman for like an advertising thing and had said, you know what, why why let this man go to waste and just sit around in my basement when I could change lives during this dark and horrible time uh, because this was in 2021. This <laughs> um, <laughs> was January 2021. Um, so, you know, I think that's really cute. Um, yeah. I don't think yeah. I'm falling for it. But we I need do to appreciate we it. need to bring back weird fucking sideshows. We need to bring back guys putting out the most shitty latex rubber Bigfoot guy and saying, "Look, I've caught a Bigfoot. It's a it's a real specimen. Do not touch it, though. Do not touch it. I l- look no further than this. If you if you press on, the illusion will fall away. Don't Come- smell it. Don't look at it. Don't don't ask questions about it." Why it's a thing. It just exists. Why can't we bring back guys putting up weird rubber shit and saying it's real? Why can't we bring back... Ah, oh, fuck. What was it? There was the Fiji mermaid. Fiji mermaid's a real fucking weird one. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? How about <laughs> would you? I, would if I you fall were in the 1960s, Minnesota ice? would you fall into this? Yeah. Um, I'm gonna say no. I think I'm firmly on Napier's side here. Uh, it seems very, very real that one of the very interesting things, actually, that I didn't address earlier, Ivan Sanderson actually said that, like, because he smelled the, the scent of decomposition, although he believed it was a real thing, he actually sent for the CIA to come investigate it. Because, what? Because he thought, this might be a murder, actually. He might have murdered a guy and stuffed him into a gorilla costume. CIA, oh can, you look, can you look into this? And the CIA was like, this is probably a hoax. And they did not look into it. Which, if Frank Hansen murdered a man, that's a whole other level. Yeah, that's commitment. Um, but no, I've just never been brought in by that kind of sideshow stuff. If it, if it is real, uh, and if those if those mountain apes are real with their with their funny sharp stone tools and their their funny little beds in and campfire stories, uh, I would love to hang out with those guys. I will say that. Uh, mm-hmm. if I would be interested in, in trading stuff with, with mountain apes, what, what kind of oh, stuff do you think sure. apes trade bugs? Crypto. <laughs> oh no. Now do you still want to trade with them? <laughs> oh no. Invest in, invest in a uh, dollar banana today. Our stocks, <laughs> our, our stocks are going, are going crazy. I think that might be a real one. Oh fuck. I've just made it real. I've brought it into existence by speaking it. That's how crypto works. <laughs> they don't exist until you discuss them. We're making them more powerful every episode. Yeah. We gotta stop. Uh, to all the kids out there, if you have found a potential archaeological specimen, please do not put it up at a freak show. Uh, please hand it over to 
uh, local scientists or, I don't know, nat naturalist authorities in subcapacity, head over to them if you think you found Give one it to of the those. DNR. Please. Um, and if you find yourself uh, hanging out with a very big ape guy, give them like a cool rock or something. I guess that's I guess that's what ape guys like. Moss, give them some moss. The Amateur Cryptid Survival Guide is a podcast lovingly created by Cass Rowland and Jude Furlong. Follow us at ACSGCast on our social media platforms: Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. And tune in Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Central, where you get your podcasts.